And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. This is a strange, strange passage. So Jesus tries again. It's almost like Jesus doesn't get it right the first time. So Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently. And his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, if we stopped there, or we just took this story in isolation, this would almost make no sense. What is just Jesus kind of starting to kind of work up his miracle powers, and he hasn't quite developed his abilities to heal people? No, this isn't what's happening. What Mark is doing in this healing story is setting us up for what's about to happen in the verses that follow. He's saying, sometimes... The first time you see something, you don't see it clearly all the way. And so it takes another go around with Jesus to see the whole picture. This is kind of what Mark is trying to communicate. There's this blind man. He opens his eyes. He thinks he sees, but what he actually sees isn't everything that he needs to see. It's a little hazy. It's a little foggy. He can see in part, but not in whole. And then Jesus comes around again, he has another encounter, another experience with Jesus, and now he can see everything fully. So, into the next story. They continue on, Jesus and the disciples. They're going from village to village, city to city, place to place, teaching, healing, and this is what happens next. Jesus went on with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples a question. Who do people say that I am? At this point, we've had eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. There's 16 in the Gospel of Mark, so we're about halfway through the story and the ministry of Jesus. And so after some time, Jesus is like, what are people saying? What are my, what are my mentions? What are people putting in the comments about what's happening, the things that I'm doing? And so the disciples, they begin to answer, and they say, some say that you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. Other people say that you're Elijah, come back from the dead. And still others, you're one of the prophets. Now, in this time period, they had been waiting on a new prophet. The people of Israel had been waiting on a new prophet from God to send a message for over 400 years. And so you can imagine this guy comes on the scene and he's spitting on people and healing people. Maybe, maybe he's a prophet. This is what the disciples report back to Jesus as they're on the way to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this city is going to be important in a second. But in this moment, after kind of getting the sense of who everyone else is saying that Jesus is, Jesus asked the disciples, maybe the most significant, the heaviest, the hardest question asked in the entire gospel. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And this, for people who are learning to follow Jesus, for people who claim to be Christian, for people who want to live like Christ, this is the single most important question that we can answer. Because who you believe Jesus is determines how you live like Jesus. Who you believe Jesus is determines how you live like Jesus or what it takes and what it looks like to follow after him. This is the question that Jesus lays on the disciples. And really, for the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, this is the question 
that the writer of the Gospel of Mark is trying to get people to ask and to answer. Who is this man? He has the power to calm the seas. He has the power to heal people. He has the power to cast demons out. He has something that we have never seen before. And so who, who is this man? This is the question that the first half of the Gospel of Mark is asking. And this is the question that Jesus asks to the disciples. Now here's what's so cool about how Mark constructs this whole Gospel. Exactly halfway in his Gospel, if you kind of count the words and the verses and you hit halfway, this is halfway in the middle of his Gospel. The other part is the answer. And that's what the rest of the Gospel of Mark begins to deal with. Who is this person? And then the answer that is to follow. So Peter, Peter answers him. And he says, you are the Messiah. Now, in this time period, there had been previous Messiahs. Messiah just means anointed one. And so there were lots of messiahs back in the day. Anytime a new prophet or a new king or a new high priest was named, they would be anointed with oil. And it was to symbolize that they were God's chosen person to lead this people, to lead the nation of Israel towards the promised land, towards the fulfillment of all that God had promised them. And so anytime there was a new leader... There was this kind of excitement around God's Messiah because he was going to be the one to lead this people. Now, over time, after Messiah, after Messiah, and then after this long period of waiting for a Messiah, this, they started to shift their understanding. And so instead of waiting for a Messiah, the conversation, the thought process started to become, now we are waiting for the Messiah, the Messiah to end all Messiahs, the one who would finally come and who would be able to lead us to where God had promised us that we would go, to be a nation, to be a people, to have land and prominence through which God would bless the entire world. And so the people were waiting for the Messiah. Now, Peter's answer, though, is not just some generic idea using the word Messiah. This is also kind of where, when you translate the word Messiah into Greek, we get the word Christ. Like we talked about two weeks ago, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a title, right? It just means the anointed one. It's the same idea. So Peter answers, he says, you are the Messiah. But in that time period, the understanding of the Messiah meant that this was a warrior king. This was somebody who was going to, through physical violence and power, defeat all of Israel's enemies and raise up and restore Israel to prominence. And so they had great expectations for a mighty warrior who would be called the Messiah, who would lead Israel and defeat the Roman Empire or whoever was in occupying power at that time and bring Israel back to prominence. And so this is kind of Peter's answer. He says, you're the Messiah. Now what's so interesting about the juxtaposition of where they are is they're on top of the city on a hill called Caesarea Philippi, which Herod the Great instituted and built and created to honor both Caesar and his son, Philip. And so what Jesus is doing in this moment and what the gospel writer of Mark is doing in this moment is saying, in the middle of a city dedicated to all of the known emperors and rulers of the land, 
here's the claim that they are not the ones who are in charge. Jesus is the one. And if you remember back from week one in this, this whole story is of the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is the claim that Mark makes throughout the entire, entire gospel. Now, what is not to be missed here in Peter's answer is this is the first time that a character in the story recognizes and identifies Jesus as the Messiah. We got it from verse 1, chapter 1. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know from the beginning. This is like watching Sixth Sense for the second time, knowing the whole time that Bruce Willis is dead, right? For some of you, you're like, it's been 20 years. Like, I don't feel bad. Spoiler alert. But this is what it's like. You read the whole story differently when you know the whole time. You see all of the interactions. You see all of the scenes play out differently when you know how the story ends. And so we get to see behind the curtain. We know from the beginning of Mark's gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. But Peter is the first one in this moment to declare it. And he declares it in this very strategic place on top of this hill, this city that was dedicated to all of the known rulers and leaders at the time. Because Jesus is finally going to be this warrior king who saves the people of Israel. Except he's not. And so what Jesus does next is confusing for Peter. And it would have been confusing for everybody else in that time period. Then Jesus begins to teach the disciples that the Son of Man, this is another title for the Chosen One must undergo great suffering. You see, there were actually two prophecies or two kind of lines of thinking around the one that God would send. The most common and the most well-known was that of the Messiah, the anointed one, this warrior king that would come and lead the people of Israel. But if you look at particularly in kind of the book of Isaiah and the writings of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah writes about this other prophecy that will come of this suffering servant, of this one who God will use and This person will suffer on behalf of Israel and through his great suffering will restore and redeem people. The people up until Jesus and then post-Jesus and writing about Jesus, people had forgotten about this particular prophecy. So Jesus begins to teach in the face of Peter calling him the Messiah, the warrior king who was to come. Jesus begins to teach about himself, about the son of man who must undergo great suffering. And he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed after three days and then rise again. Now, once again, we know how this story ends. Of course, this is what has to happen. But if you're Peter, if you're the disciples and you finally see somebody who has supernatural powers, can spit on people and they open their eyes and see, surely this is going to end in success, in victory. And what you see in later chapters is the disciples start arguing about who's going to be second in command in Jesus' new empire. They start arguing and kind of bickering over and jockeying for position because they recognize that this trajectory is up and to the right, and they're, they're really excited about this. And so then Jesus begins to teach, and he says, no, I'm actually going to have to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by all of the religious leaders of the time. And eventually I'm going to be killed. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. 
And most of the time when Jesus is teaching about what's going to happen in the future, he kind of hides it in stories or parables. He says it in very confusing turn of phrase. But this is what Mark says about Jesus teaching about his future suffering. He says all of this quite openly. Other translations say he said this very plainly, very matter of fact. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, this seems a little bit out of turn for Peter. Why would you pull Jesus aside and rebuke him? Because to Peter, Jesus is talking nonsense. Jesus is the Messiah. He's supposed to be the warrior king. This is not what the warrior king Messiah is supposed to do. He's not going to die. He's not going to lose. He's going to win. This doesn't make any sense for Peter's understanding of who Jesus is and who Jesus is supposed to be. And here's what I think is so important for us in this story. We do the same thing. How many of us make Jesus into our image, into our version of what Jesus should be? If we were to be really honest, how many of our Jesuses look just like us? They like the same people we like. They disapprove of the same people that we disapprove of. They spend, Jesus spends his money the same way we spend our money. Jesus votes the same way that we vote. Jesus agrees with all of the choices that we make and disagrees with all of the choices we don't make. Our Jesuses look like us. And it really bothers us. And we get really frustrated when we find out the ways that Jesus doesn't conform to our image. See, this is the, the biggest problem, I think, with Christianity, is we continue to try to make Jesus conform to our image. And we miss the work that we have to do to conform to his image. We try to make Jesus conform to our image, and we miss his calling to conform to his. And Peter shows us exactly what this looks like. And so he pulls Jesus aside, and he chews on him a little bit. He gets after him. He says, no, Jesus, that's not how it's supposed to go. That's not how it's supposed to look like. But... Turning and looking at all of the other disciples, Jesus then in turn rebukes Peter. And he says the thing that all of us would love to hear from Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. In this moment, Jesus is naming how Peter is totally missing the mark on how all of this is supposed to go. And in fact, by trying to force Jesus to be a different type of Messiah than Jesus actually is, he's working against Jesus' efforts. And this is why Jesus calls him Satan. I think it's probably hyperbole to kind of make a point. And then Jesus kind of explains why he calls him Satan. He says, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Again, this is kind of that same idea. We make Jesus into our own image. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. This is not what it's supposed to look like. And then, a last bit of teaching from Jesus, and then we'll wrap it all up. And so then, after all of this happens, after he heals the blind man twice, and after he has this conversation with the disciples about who do you say that I am, and then he has this conversation with Peter, then he gathers the crowd that's been following, and he brings them all in close. And he says, if any wish to be my disciple, 
Let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, this idea of denying themselves, it's it's not exactly self-denial in the way that we think about it. During the season of Lent, self-denial is one of the practices. So maybe some of you were foregoing coffee or wine or chocolate or whatever it may be. Maybe it's Netflix. Whatever you're denying yourself, that is a spiritual practice that does help us reform and reshape our hearts. But what Jesus is talking about here is not that type of self-denial. It's not about denying something to ourself, but it's denying of ourself. Means putting what we want secondary, lowering our self importance, lowering our self, you know, um, centeredness. This is the shift that Jesus is asking us to make. Because in, this, in the use of this word deny, it's really saying that you're no longer having to do with this person. Like if you were to deny somebody, like Peter later denies Jesus. He dismisses and disowns and doesn't reference or relate to Jesus. This is kind of the idea. It's putting yourself out of the equation. And this is maybe the hardest challenge for us as Westerners. Because our whole culture, our whole society, prioritizes and orients around the self. Where is the center of the known universe in Western culture? It's the individual. All truth is relative to the individual. Is there any absolute truth? Not in Western culture. It's only what's true for me. It's about what I want, when I want, how I want. And we spend our entire lives chasing after this. Should I do something? Well, will it feel good to me? Great, I'll do it. We, st- we don't stop to count the cost or to measure how it impacts other people because our primary focus is always, always, always ourselves. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to begin to live a life that mirrors my life, the first thing that you have to do is to stop being so self-referencing. The question, do I want to do this, or what do I want in relationship to Jesus, shouldn't be asked. Now, this is not permission to go through your life like a doormat and letting people walk all over you. Let me just make that caveat and that aside. This is not self-referencing to everyone else in your life. This is in relationship to Jesus, in relationship to your discipleship to Jesus. I really want to do this, but I know I shouldn't. Well, then don't do it. It's acknowledging what you want. It's acknowledging your kind of inclinations and your tendencies, your patterns, the temptations that exist. It's not saying don't feel tempted, but it's saying in the face of those, you deny. And he goes on. It gets worse. Because not only do you have to deny, but now you gotta, now you got to die. So deny yourselves. Take up your cross. Follow me. Now, in the Roman world, we kind of know about crucifixion as a form of torture and punishment because precisely of Jesus. But 
when Jesus named these words as this path to follow in discipleship and obedience to Jesus, this was not kind of an acknowledged kind of form of punishment that would have been common to people. Yes, the Roman Empire did this, but it wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't an understanding of what self-sacrifice looks like. And to kind of press in a little bit further on what Jesus is actually asking his disciples, his followers, and ultimately us to do is to take up your cross, right? Well, what the Romans would have you do, not only besides being hung on a cross, but they would make you carry the cross beam the entire way to the crucifixion site as just another kind of level of humiliation and of embarrassment and of dehumanization. It's like making somebody dig their own grave. It's that same effect. It's that same impact. You are so subhuman that you have to pick up the torture device that we're going to use to kill you with. And you've got to carry it the whole way. And yet this is what Jesus asks us to do. Stop referencing ourselves first and to begin to submit Submit to hand over our lives, to live in sacrifice, to obedience to him. And then he says, and follow me. And where does Jesus' life go? He goes to the cross. And so us as followers of Christ, us who use the name Christian, if Christianity cost Jesus his life, why did we expect that it would cost us any less? You see, for most of us, we have been presented with a very comfortable first-class Christianity. The seats are nice, leathery. Drinks are brought to us. We get to board the plane first, get off first. Not a lot of inconvenience for us. We show up on Sunday, we sing the songs feels pretty good. And Jesus is saying, this is not what discipleship to me looks like. It means starting to take inventory of your life and the ways in which your life is oriented to serve you and beginning to undo those things. It means to begin to consider a different way to live instead of prioritizing your own wants, starting to prioritize what Jesus is calling us to do, the ways that he is calling us to sacrifice ourselves. If your life is lived in total service to you instead of in service to Christ, Jesus is saying, that is not what following me looks like. And then he goes on, because of the tendency that we have to not want to do this. He says, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. It will cost us our life. It will cost us relationships. It will cost us experiences. It will cost us our own interests and preferences and desires. It will cost us comfort. But Jesus says, if you live this way, it's through this path that you will truly experience life. And he goes on to say this. 
For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Your translation might say and forfeit their soul. It's this Greek word, psyche, which really is just kind of our understanding of self, of identity. It says, what will it profit them to gain the whole world but yet lose the essence of who they are? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? In the late 800s, or the early 800s, there was a king. Y'all might know him as Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He is largely credited through military victory of unifying all of Europe, starting, you know, kind of this new renaissance in Europe. He's oftentimes called the father of Europe. And about 200 years after Charlemagne's death, they uncovered his tomb. And what they found was the floor adorned with gold, jewels and decorations of the highest level of ornateness, filling this kind of burial chamber. And at the far end of the chamber was this beautiful gold throne. And there on the throne was Charlemagne's skeleton, wearing his gold crown. And in his lap, Charlemagne was holding a Bible, and his finger was pointed to this verse. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? I don't know if Charlemagne understood this before it was too late for him. But this is the juxtaposition. Somebody who was esteemed to have had it all. And yet can also acknowledge that you can gain everything and still end up with nothing. C.S. Lewis, when he was writing about this passage in Mark 8, puts it so beautifully. It's sometimes only C.S. Lewis can do. So this is what C.S. Lewis said about this passage in Mark. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. And then he ends with this. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Friends, let's pray. Gracious Lord, help us to take heed of your words, to recognize that to follow you means that we have to deny ourselves. We have to take up our cross and we have to begin to follow. And to follow you so fully in a way that it ultimately means forfeiting and sacrificing our life. 
And so God, as we do, encourage us and strengthen us and pour your grace and mercy upon us so that we may truly experience life beyond life that is only found in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.